If you have a Bible, um, find Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Tonight we're coming to the next to last statement in the Apostles' Creed about the person and work of Jesus. We've talked about his incarnation. We've talked about his suffering, his crucifixion, his descent to the dead, his resurrection from the dead. And tonight we're coming to the next event in the saving work of Christ for his people, which is his ascension back to heaven. Um, to the Father's right hand. We just confessed it in the creed. He, as, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. I think, I think, I, I could be wrong, I think that um, perhaps right behind Jesus' descent to the dead, his ascension back to heaven is probably the most neglected aspect of his saving work, um, in, at least in terms of what we talk about. Not that we haven't heard that it happened or don't, or don't realize that it happened or anything like that, but we probably haven't thought about what it means. Like, what, what did it accomplish? Not just that it happened, but not just that he went from here to there. What happened when he did that? Like, what, what, why is that important? And I mean, probably aware that he ascended, but haven't really given any thought beyond that. But it is an incredibly important doctrine. And I'll say this, it's as important. The doctrine of his ascension is as important for us and for our salvation as the cross and the resurrection. And that's saying something. The cross alone could not save us. Uh, it couldn't save us apart from his resurrection. And likewise, even then, our salvation to the uttermost was not assured apart from his ascension. So, um, quite frankly, it's remarkable that we say so little about it, if that's true. And, uh, and generally speaking, know so little about it. But I hope we can remedy some of that tonight. Before we read our main scripture uh, that we're going to start out in, 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 in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to end up looking at a lot of scripture tonight, I want to mention another book to you. Uh, I, I, I mentioned a book. I read from a book a couple of weeks ago on the descent, and several of you came up to, to me afterwards and said, I, I want that book. So I thought, well, I'll do it again. I, uh, this is not near as big a book as the one on the descent. It's just called The Ascension of Christ. Um, recovering a neglected doctrine, the ascension of Christ by Patrick Schreiner. Um, I read this somewhat recently. I I, I know Patrick a little bit. Um, his dad was one of my seminary professors. But anyway, um, I have I found this to be one of the most insightful books on the on the ascension that I have ever read on it. Um, and it's so totally accessible. You can tell it's not a big book, so you could really plow through it, and it's, it's not really overly complicated either. And I mention that because a lot of what I want us to, to think about tonight, about the ascension, um, I was helped by Patrick to see it. And so a lot of what I'm going to say, I'll just go ahead and say, give him credit for it. I got it from him. So um, I, I commend it to you because it's so good. And I'm going to read you something from it in just a little while. But um, anyway, back to regular programming. 
if you found Acts chapter 1, uh, follow along with me. Let's read our passage um, beginning in, in, in verse 6, and we'll read through verse 11. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Uh, Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word and and all the other scriptures we're going to think about tonight, I, I pray that um, as we move through uh, these different scriptures, thinking carefully about this doctrine, uh, you, would, you would help us to do that. We, we confess our faith that this scripture and all the others, are they, they are your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And I pray that you would give us eyes to see the truth in the, in the scriptures. Uh, minds to understand it clearly, hearts to embrace it, love it, care about it, see its importance. And would you give us wills to obey whatever it, it calls us to do? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Hey, Alex, I got a little ringing up here. I don't know if you know that. All right. One of the most helpful uh, things that Patrick does in that book is he 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 talks about the, the ascension of Christ and helps us to understand the significance of that. He, 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 he relates it to the threefold office of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. And it's, it was fascinating to me. And not only uh, seeing how uh, the Old Testament uh, anticipates not only how Christ would fulfill each of those roles of prophet, priest, and king, which he did in his earthly life and ministry, but that his ascension back to heaven would bring each of those to a climactic shift in, in, in significance. So I want to follow that path that he laid out in his book and, and, and to help us think through it. So what I want us to think about are just three points, prophet, priest, and king, but the ascension of Christ the prophet, the ascension of Christ the priest, and the ascension of Christ the king. It'll be a lot of ground to cover, but my prayer is that that we would leave tonight, as a result of what we think about in the Scriptures tonight, we would leave tonight more in love with Christ, more in awe of His salvation, and more in awe of His glory than we were when we came here tonight. So let's get going. Let's think first about the ascension of Christ the prophet. Like I said, we're going to think about several Scriptures tonight. We may not flip to all of them, but just you might want to jot some of these down. So I think to understand the full significance of Jesus' ascension, I do think you have to think about it from more than just the angle of 
of the bare facts that he was here and that as a man he ascended back into heaven and as a man he's coming back. And just, uh, you know, just, yeah, we, we're the, the bare facts. He rose from the dead. We're told in, in Acts 1-3 that, that the resurrected Jesus appeared to uh, many people over the course of 40 days and then he ascended back into heaven. Ten days later, the Spirit poured out and one day he's going to come back just as he left. Um, if we let the whole if we let the whole Bible speak for itself, there is a whole lot going on when Jesus ascended. And one angle to think about that is from the angle of Christ the prophet, the prophet that was anticipated to come uh, in the Old Testament and the significance that the ascension has for it. So clearly in the Gospels that record uh, Jesus' life for us, Jesus as pre- is presented as a prophet. Many, many times. He even takes that, that designation on for himself. Uh, so, for example, when, when he went back to his hometown of Nazareth in Matthew 13, and he was rejected there, his message was rejected. That, uh, he, they were offended by his message. Don't we know his parents? You know, like They were offended that he was seeming to claim to be something more than they thought he was. What was Jesus' response to their rejection of him? He said in Matthew 13, 57, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And so he identifies himself as a prophet there. But others also said this about Jesus, that he was a prophet. We want to. Uh, we mentioned last week when we're talking about different resurrections prior to Jesus' resurrection. One of those was the widow of Nain's son in Luke chapter 7, how he raised uh, her son from the dead. And going back to that, that instance in Luke chapter 7, when he raised that child from the dead, all who were gathered around were told in Luke 7, 16, that fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. So they, they, a prophet is here. When Jesus rode into, into, into town, into Jerusalem, triumphal entry, for the last week of his earthly life, the crowds laid palm branches and waved palm branches and, and laid their cloaks on the ground. And what did they, what did they say? They said, uh, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And some people are saying, well, who is that? They don't really know who, it, who this is that people are screaming for. And the answer to the crowd that some give in Matthew 21, 11, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Later in that same chapter, the, the Pharisees and, the, and the, 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 the chief priests, they wanted to, to kill Jesus, or at least they wanted to arrest him, but they were skittish about arresting him at that moment. Why? It says because they feared the crowds, because the crowds held him to be a prophet. So over and over and over again, Jesus is presented to us as a prophet. Now, absolutely, he was more than just a prophet. John the Baptist said that much, but he's a prophet nonetheless. And the Old Testament anticipated that one day a prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses, would come. Greater than all who came before, on whom the the Spirit of God would would rest in, in greater measure than had rested on any previous prophet. Think about that passage in Isaiah chapter 61 that Jesus in Luke chapter 4 stands up in the synagogue and reads, and what does it say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and He's anointed me to proclaim release to the captives. He's, he is saying, I'm that prophet on whom the Spirit has rested. 
Deuteronomy 18, 15, uh, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And more than once in the, in the New Testament, the writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that's Jesus it was talking about. In Acts chapter 3, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, quotes that passage, says that's Jesus. He is that prophet that Moses said was coming. In Acts chapter 7, right before Stephen is stoned to death and is the first Christian martyr, he stands up. By the way, if there's, I'm a big advocate of memorizing Scripture. If you ever want to try your hand at memorizing a longer passage of Scripture, you're not quite ready to tackle an entire book. But if you, and you could do that. You can, I promise you. Just take some stick-to-itiveness. But if you want to say, I want to I memorize a whole chapter of something, Acts chapter 7 is a great chapter to memorize. Why? Because it is basically Stephen's spirit-inspired summary of the whole Old Testament. That would be a great chapter to have rolling around in your mind. But anyway, Stephen, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, he quotes that same Deuteronomy 18.15, says, that was Jesus. Right? He is that greater prophet because he was God himself among us. Like we read at the beginning of our service tonight, Hebrews chapter 1, long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to us by his prophets. But in these last days, how has he spoken to us? By his son, right? Who is the exact imprint of the nature of God. But it's one thing to recognize that Jesus is that greater prophet that the, the, the Old Testament said would come and that he would bring the final word, the fullest revelation of God in his person and in his words. But what does this have to do with this ascension back into heaven? What does this have to do with us? Well, to see that, let's, let's think about a couple of other passages in the Old Testament that foreshadow the answer to those questions I just, I just asked. They seem to, we see it confirmed in the New Testament as well. Think about prophet in the Old Testament and where we see prophets. There's there are some patterns with prophets, some import, and not just, there's a lot of prophets in the Old Testament. There's lots of just like prophets that are, their name appears one time and you never hear from them again, but they were a prophet. But there's, you know, there's some major important prophets in the Old Testament. And with some of those major important prophets, um, we see some common patterns about them uh, that are important for our purposes thinking through the ascension. The pattern is this. There is some sort of ascent, like going up on a high place and then receiving the word of God and then bringing that word for it then to be extended and expanded to bless others. Okay? Let me just, and one of these may not, you may not initially, initially think, think of as a prophet, but I'll, I think it's intended to be this. He's the first one. It's Adam. <laughs> Adam, the first man, Adam. Um, so think about that pattern, ascent, get the word, bring the word, extend it, bless others through it. Um, I don't know if you've ever considered it, but the Garden of Eden in which Adam lived is described as being a mountain. Have you ever thought about it being a mountain? It is. Um, why do we think it's a mountain? Well, in Genesis 2.10, we're told that a river flowed out of it and then split into four other rivers, and of course, generally speaking, water doesn't flow uphill, flows downhill, right? So Eden is a mountain, and, and a river is flowing downward out of it. That's not the only reason we think it's a mountain. 
Ezekiel 28, verses 13 and 14, confirms that when Ezekiel talks about Eden, the garden of God, and later, a verse later calls it the mountain, the holy mountain of God. So Eden was on a hill, at least, if not a mountain. So Adam, the first man, is ascended on a hill, on a, on a high place, and he receives the word of God. It's a simple word. Right? You may eat of all the, the fruit trees, but you cannot eat of this one. In the day that you eat, you'll surely die. He receives that word from God, and what is he supposed to do with it? Hoard it to himself? No. He creates the first woman. He's supposed to communicate that to her. If they have other sons and daughters, he's supposed to communicate that to them. And, and through his bringing to them the word of God, they are to walk in obedience to God and experience his blessing and flourish there in the Garden of Eden. Obviously, Adam failed in that task, but we see the pattern. High place, ascension, receives the word, right? And, and brings it down to, for it to proliferate. In Exodus, second example, Moses, he's clearly a prophet. He's the one that in Deuteronomy 18, 15 said he's going to raise up a prophet like me from among you. Moses, where does he go up? He ascends Mount Sinai. He goes up on the high place, and there he receives the word of God in the form of the law. And from there he brings that word as a down as a prophet of God to the people of Israel who are not only to know that law and not only to obey it, but who through that obedience are to be a light to the nations around them. Obviously, they failed in that, but we see the pattern. Thirdly, third example here, 2 Kings 2. 2 Kings chapter 2, we see the ascension of the prophet Elijah, major important prophet. And this is perhaps, perhaps the, is, has particularly clear connections to the ascension of Jesus. In, in 2 Kings 2, Elijah is about to be taken up by the Lord. And he doesn't die, right? He's just taken. Pretty sweet way to go. In some ways, to me, it's a funny chapter because Elijah tells his disciple Elisha, hey, I need to go to Bethel. Uh, I don't want you to come. Elisha's like, I'm going to come with you. And this, this group called the Sons of the Prophets, they, they're like always there. And they, and they say, they tell Elisha, they're like, you do know that today the Lord's going to take your master away from you. He's like, I know, shut up. And then it happens like two or three more times. I'm going to go to Jericho. You know that today they're going to take him. I know, be quiet, you know. I don't know what he was like, shut up, maybe you won't go. I don't know what he was thinking. But anyway... He didn't really say shut up, but if he was there, he probably did. But um, then, after that happens two or three times, Elijah finally turns to Elisha, and he says, Elisha, I'm about to be taken from you, right? These guys, that were they were right. I'm about to be taken. What do you want me to do for you before I leave? And Elisha answers that he wants a double portion of Elijah's spirit upon him. And here's what Elijah says back. If you see me, if you see me as I am ascending into heaven, then a double portion, you'll have it. A double portion of my spirit will be upon you. If you don't see me, it won't happen. And then it says famously, Behold, chariots of fire 
And horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven, and Elisha saw it. And so the spirit of Elisha, Elijah rested on Elisha to be a prophet of Israel, to bring the nation of Israel into obedience to God, and so that by their obedience, the nation of Israel would be a blessing to the nations around him. That story is particularly fascinating because not only do you have the ascension of Elisha of, of Elijah, but you have these particular elements, Elisha witnessing it, seeing it. And you have the elements of fire and wind associated with it as the Spirit descends on Elisha to go bear witness. Have that in mind. Have that 2 Kings 2 story about Elijah and Elisha and fire and wind, ascension, see it. Have that in mind then when you go back to Acts chapter 1. You go back to Acts chapter 1, you see all of those elements at play in Jesus' ascension, right? Because you have the disciples witnessing, seeing it. They're gazing up at heaven. The angels even say, what are you looking at? They see Jesus ascending back into heaven just as Elisha saw Elijah ascend. Jesus ascended in a cloud, according to Acts chapter 1, just like Elisha, Elijah ascended in a whirlwind. And in 2 Kings 2, that the Spirit descended on Elisha in Acts chapter 1 is followed by Acts chapter 2, 10 days later, where the Holy Spirit is poured out on the, the disciples in what form? Wind and fire. Tongues of fire, sound of rushing wind. Just as it happened with Elisha. Why? So that Why did it happen in Acts chapter 2? So that the apostles were now empowered to take the word of God. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea to the end of the earth. Right? Prophetically to all the nations. To bring all the nations to obey Christ and, and blessing on all the nations to come through him. Jesus is presented in the Gospels as the greater prophet foretold to come that Moses said would one day come, but the Old Testament also had a greater vision than that. Not just that a greater prophet would come, but something even better. Where do we see that? In Numbers chapter 11. I told you we're going to think about it a lot, so just jot them down. In Numbers chapter 11, Moses was about to reach his limit in leading all the people of Israel. There was a couple of times where, where <laughs> Moses literally says, God, if this is the way it's going to be, just kill me now. Like, he actually reaches that point in scripturated form. He, and, but anyway, he's, he's almost reached that point of leading the people by himself and having to make all these decisions, so the Lord has mercy on him. And he tells, he tells Moses, go gather all the elders of the people and bring them to me. So here's, I'll just start reading. We read beginning in verse 25 of Numbers 11. And he gathered, this, he gather, gathered 70 men, of the elders of the people, and placed them around the tent. That would be the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the 70 elders, or as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing so. Now two men remained in the camp, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, so they prophesied in the camp. Joshua, who was Moses' understudy at that time, he saw these guys prophesying in the camp, and he got jealous for Moses. 
He, he thinks they're gonna, people are going to flock to these two guys and leave the authority of Moses. He says, Moses, these guys are got the Spirit on them, and they're prophesying in the camp. Moses answers jo, uh, Joshua in verse 29 saying, Are you jealous for my sake? And here's what he says. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his Spirit on all of them. That's, what, that's the day that Moses longed for. The Old Testament vision was not just that, an, that, a, that a, a greater prophet than Moses would come, but that somehow through that prophet, somehow the Spirit of God would then come to rest on all of God's people. Jesus was that greater prophet to come. He told his disciples in John 16, 7, it is better for you if I go away. It's better for you if I go away. Why? Because when he goes, he would send his spirit on all of them and Jesus' presence in the world would multiply. And it was through his ascension, followed by Pentecost 10 days later, that that came about. And the rest of the New Testament confirms that we are now the body and presence of Christ in the world, empowered by his spirit to prophetically declare his gospel to all the nations, blessing all the nations through his word. It is through the ascension of Christ that we are empowered to live obediently according to his will and to make Christ known by our witness according to his commission. The ascension of Christ didn't bring about the end of Jesus' prophetic ministry, but expanded it through his church, his body, empowered by his spirit in the world. The Old Testament foreshadowed it. Jesus, through his ascension and the sending of the spirit, fulfilled it. But the, spirits, the scriptures don't just present Jesus as a greater prophet, but a greater priest. All right? So let's think about the ascension of Christ the priest. Just like the Gospels present Jesus as a greater prophet, who was foretold to come. In the same way, and, and if you've been around here, you could, you could almost stand up here and say what I'm about to say, all these things. The, the Gospels present Jesus as a greater priest who was to come. Um, fulfilling in his own life and ministry the, the, the work that the Levitical priests were called to accomplish but never actually could. The book of Hebrews makes that clear. How, how, does the, how do the Gospels present Jesus as a, as a priest and a greater one at that? Um, Jesus is presented as a priest at his baptism. Um, why did Jesus wait until he was 30 to start his public ministry? I mean, was that just random? Why, why didn't he start at 28? Why didn't he start at your age? I mean, why, why 30? Um, well, perhaps because in the Old Testament, according to the law, Priests could not be initiated into the priesthood until they were 30 years old. And, they under, and to be initiated into the priesthood, they had to undergo various washings with water. You can read about that in Numbers chapter 4 and Numbers chapter 8. You want to fact check me on this. It'll tell you about 30 years old and it'll tell you about washing with water. <laughs> and so Jesus, at 30 years old, undergoing a baptism in water, at the hands of John, was symbolically entering his ministry as a, as a greater priest at his baptism. How else does it te teach us that he was a, 
a greater priest. Practically everything he did, his taking authority in the temple and driving out the money changers. And, 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 he sa- and they looked at him and said, he, they looked at him and they quoted Psalm 69 and said, that's being fulfilled in him. Zeal for your house has consumed me. He's, he's, a, he's a priest taking authority in the temple. He's, he's exercising uh, the, 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 the gifts of a priest when, when every person he healed. Uh, teaching us how to pray. Teaching the scriptures with authority like no one else had ever heard t- teach the scriptures like that. And ultimately, he presents himself as a greater priest by providing the sacrifice necessary for the final salvation of all who believe, the the kind of sacrifice that Old Testament priests could never offer. Through his sacrifice, they could be forgiven of their sins, have forever peace with God, greater than any Old Testament priest or any Old Testament sacrifice could accomplish. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. But what does his ascension have to do with this? We're talking about his life and ministry in the Gospels, How is his priestly ministry connected to Acts chapter 1 and his ascension back into heaven where he ascends to the right hand of the Father? Again, to see this, we need to think a little bit more about the Old Testament priests and the temple. Again, there's a clear pattern with regard to the priesthood in the Old Testament. And the pattern is this. Offering for sins, ascending into the presence of God, interceding for the people, coming again to bless the people. Offering sacrifice for sins, ascending in the presence of God, interceding for the people, and then blessing the people. That's the, that's the, where do we see that? We see it again in Moses. We see it in Moses in Exodus 24. God calls Moses to go up on the mountain, but before he goes, what does he do? He builds an altar and he sacrifices for the sins of the people, and he takes this is the initiation of the covenant of, with Moses. He, he altar sacrifices. He takes half the blood of the sacrifices and throws it on the altar, takes half the blood and throws it on the people. He really did that. Imagine. Imagine if we did that still, that kind of stuff, like blood all over you, and then you get in the car and go home. Anyway, but after... After offering sacrifices for the people, Moses then ascends up to the mountain, but not just any old mountain, ascends to the presence of God on that mountain, covered by a cloud in the presence of God for 40 days. And there on that mountain, he was interceding. He was there on behalf of all the people. He was the one receiving the law. He was there in the presence of God. Nobody else could even come near. Don't even come close to this mountain. If you touch this mountain, you'll die. Moses was the intercessor. He was there on behalf of the people, and there, uh, as their mediator and their representative received the law. And at the end of that time, Moses came down to bless the people, giving them the law. We see that we move on down the line in the Old Testament. We see that pattern again in Old Testament priests on the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Pop quiz. What's the best way to read Leviticus in one sitting? Do it. Try it sometime. Seriously. Um, This was the, the Day of Atonement, Luke chapter 16. High point of the year and... 
and you know, it's when the priests would offer sacrifices for all the people, and among those sacrifices, they would ha- they would take two goats. You remember? They would take two goats, and they would symbolically lay the sins onto the goats through the laying on of hands. And with one of those goats, what would they do to it? Kill it? Sacrifice that goat? That represented propitiation, like God's wrath being taken away from your sins. The other goat, they didn't kill. They just sent it away into the wilderness, which is, some, is like expiation. Your guilt is being taken away. First goat, your, 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 his wrath is being taken away. Second goat, your guilt is being taken away. But it was after the sacrifices that the high priest would do what? He would enter in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and in the temple. And the way that the tabernacle or temple was structured, it had a curtain separating this part and then a curtain separating that part and this part and that part. The the way it was structured and and compartmentalized like that was, was every curtain you passed, it was like you were ascending higher and higher into the very presence of God, holy holies, right? And they only did it once a year. And it was like ascending into the very presence of God, into the very presence of God himself, the holy of holies. And there the priest would would intercede on behalf of the people. Let me just read you this, uh, this quick portion from Patrick's book. Aaron was commanded, just, I. Uh, the reason I want to read you is I read I read this and I was just like, it just how f- how fearful a time it had to have been, and yeah, Aaron was commanded to come inside the veil in an ordered way. Imagine if you messed up. For the Lord would appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. The cloud kept him from beholding the full glory of the Lord. He came before the Lord with a sacrifice, dressed in a holy linen coat, bathed with incense before the Lord, and with blood sprinkled seven times on the mercy seat and the altar. I mean, you are alone in there with the Lord. Exodus 28, 29 informs readers that when the high priest entered the holy place, he bore the names of the sons of Israel on his breastpiece, thus indicating going before God on behalf of the people. The high priest mediated a vicarious human acting on behalf of others. So sacrifices were made. The high priest symbolically ascended into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies, the presence of God, interceded for the people. And when it was finished, he would come out. He would raise his hands. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. He would bless them. The New Testament presents this same pattern with Jesus. We've already mentioned the ways in his life that he was the greater priest. In in his person, he's a better priest because he's the very son of God. In his work, 
he's a better priest because the sacrifice of himself could actually achieve a salvation that the Old Testament sacrifices never could. But his priestly work is not complete without his ascension. Like it's not done. He hasn't done all the work of a priest without his ascension. Without the ascension, we are still lacking his blessing and his intercession. Right? And it's in his ascension that we find both. We find his blessing. In Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, in his brief account of Jesus' ascension, in Luke 24, here's what Luke writes about his, about his ascension. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany. Now catch this. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them as he was carried up into heaven. And what is he doing as our priest at the Father's right hand? He is interceding for his people. Presenting his finished work on our behalf to the Father. As Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he, not just the risen, but the ascended Christ, remember how we began, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's, that's Hebrews 1. Hebrews 7.25, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to do what? To make intercession for them. He is there in our stead. He is there in our place. He is holding our spot in heaven. With him there as our intercessor, we are there while we are still here. You as a believer will persevere to the end because Jesus, your high priest, ascended not to an earthly holy of holies, but to heaven itself, to the Father's right hand, interceding himself for you, his life for yours, his sacrifice for yours. Apart from the cross, we don't have any forgiveness. Apart from the resurrection, our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. Apart from his ascension, we have no hope. But he died and he rose and he ascended to intercede and so he is able to save to the uttermost all who draw near to God through him. He is our ascended prophet. He is our ascended priest. But before we go, I just want to say a word also about this reality that he is our ascended king. Without question, like his other two offices, Jesus in the Gospels is presented as a king during his earthly ministry. How? The wise men, among other things, brought him gold. Right? Uh, you, you, yeah, anyway. He brought him gold. It's a royal gift. And the fact that they came and they bowed to him, you know, um, Jesus in the Gospels presented himself as possessing authority even over the rulers of this world, even though he, did, he chose not to exercise it before, as he went to the cross. Paul would later say they, if, they would not have crucified Jesus if they had known that he was the Lord of glory. That's what Paul said. Jesus is presented at both ends of Matthew's Gospel. At the beginning as the son of David through his genealogy, through his birth, 
and at his triumphal entry, Hosanna to the son of David, even at its crucifixion, at the lowest point of his humiliation, at the crucifixion, they put a sign over him, yeah, mockingly, but said what? King of the Jews in three languages. The Jews didn't like it. They were like, change it to say he said he was the king of the Jews. And they're like, what I've written, what I've written. And it stayed there. They did it mockingly. It was telling the truth. In the Old Testament, the Davidic kings were chosen by God. According to Deuteronomy 17, that chosen king was to know the law. They were to know it. They were to obey it so that God would bless them and all the people through them as they rule righteously. And then as he blesses the people, Israel would then bring blessing to the world because of its king. A fundamental, fundamental to all, all this is the king's ascension to his throne. Psalm 2 is the psalm that was always read uh, or sung at the ascension and coronation of Israel's king. Psalm 2 is. Psalm 1 talks about how that king is to love the law of the Lord and meditate on it day and night and rule righteously and reign righteously. We know from the Old Testament story and Israel's exile that the kings of Israel and Judah did not live up to their calling. They were chosen by the Lord. I love Daniel. Take your Bible and find the book of Daniel, chapter 7. If you're, you know, if you're in Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, turn right. Daniel, chapter 7. And I just want you to look at it with your eyes. Somebody said one time, if you, if you were like stranded on an island and could only have two books of the Bible with you, an Old Testament book and a New Testament book, what would it be? I answered, I would want Daniel and Romans. Because Daniel is going to give you a lot of good stuff about God and what's going to happen in the future. And Romans is going to tell you how to maintain in the meantime. Anyway, Daniel, chapter 7. So if you're looking at chapter 7 of Daniel, verses 1 through 8 present four beasts representing four different empires. You've got a lion and a bear and a leopard and then this great little terrifying one that was like made out of iron and stuff. And as you proceed through the different beasts, they get more power, more and more powerful more and more proud and arrogant before the Lord. So you have this, remember how Psalm 2 says, why do the nations rage? Right? This is, you have the nations raging in the first half of Daniel 7. Look at how the chapter then proceeds. After you have this, you have, the, verse 8 ends with like uh, a mouth speaking great things, meaning arrogant, pompous things. The nations are pompous against the Lord. But verses 9 and 10 it moves from this vision of four, pre, four, four beasts to the, to the Lord, the Ancient of Days, and he is completely placid despite the belligerence of the nations. 
He sits in judgment. And it says at the end of verse 10, the court sat in judgment and books were opened. I mean, it's like while the nations are raging, beasts, and they're getting stronger, more powerful, more belligerent, more arrogant, more pompous, the Lord is just sitting there. Books are opened. Why is the Lord placid like this before the rebellion and belligerence of the nations against him? Answer is verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. This is Jesus. But when does this happen? When does, what, what, when does verses 13 and 14 happen? I'll tell you when it happened. At his ascension. That's his enthronement. This, what we just read, is the other side of the clouds from Acts chapter 1. You, you, do you get what I'm saying? Acts chapter 1 says that Jesus was taken up into heaven, a cloud, a cloud took him up in, right in front of the disciples. A cloud took him up. In Acts chapter 1, it's a departure on a cloud. In Daniel 7, it's the other side of the cloud. This is his arrival on the cloud, right? This is his arrival to rule and to reign over all the nations, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. Jesus' ascension was his enthronement to exercise all authority in heaven and on earth. And what is important not to miss is that he has ascended as a man. As a man. He ascended in our likeness as our representative, and we are united to him by faith. He, hence, he reigns as ascended king, and we will reign with him. Hebrews 12, 28, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And if you want to know how it all ends, let the Apostle John tell you. Then I saw heaven opened. This is Revelation 19. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has, I love this, he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Why tell us that little tidbit? Because all throughout the Bible, naming something implies authority over it. Adam named the animals. Daniel and his friends, Daniel and his friends were captured by the Babylonians. And Nebuchadnezzar, what did he do with them? Renamed them. Did a dang good job. We know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's, what ne that's the names that Nebuchadnezzar gave them. We don't even remember their actual names. Right? Mishael and Azariah. You say, who are they? You say, Shadrach, Meshach. Oh, I know. 
Nebuchadnezzar wanted to demonstrate his authority over him, so he named him. Jesus has a name that nobody knows but himself. Nobody has authority over him. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name, King of kings and Lord of lords in all his ascended glory. It, it, makes, it makes all the difference in the world that our prophet, priest, and king, Jesus, is our ascended prophet, priest, and king. As our ascended prophet, he has given his word and commission. He has filled us with his spirit to go into all nations and bear witness to his gospel prophetically. As our ascended priest, he assures us of our peace with God on the basis of his cross and resurrection, which he continually puts before God as the surety of our salvation. And as our ascended king, he gives us the promise that he rules over the nations and he gives us the grace to persevere, knowing that he is sovereignly working all things together for our good and we will run one day reign with him forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this word. I pray, I know it was a lot of scripture to think about, but I pray that we wrote some of these down, could revisit them uh, sometime later. I, pr I thank you that you are, that, that the story of the scriptures is so rich and so varied and so, who would make it up? It's amazing. I pray that, that, that we would think for a long time about the fact that you are not just crucified for us, not but that you descended to the dead and proclaimed your glory to, to, to those who had gone before and uh, proclaimed your victory. And in your resurrection, you proclaimed your victory to all the nations. And in your ascension, your glory is seen in the heavens above, but you are there interceding for us, ruling over all the nations, and sending out your church to the ends of the earth as ascended prophet. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.